everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, podcast coming to you by way of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Teaching and Learning. If you all can't tell, I'm getting way more comfortable with the lead-ins for these, right? We've done, this is now our sixth episode of the podcast. I personally am really excited because this is the first time I'm speaking to someone whose work I've actually used multiple times in, uh, throughout my own work. So. Uh, today with me, one, I want to also introduce Vanch Jalan, who is one of our student employees inside of the Center for Teaching and Learning. Uh, Vanch, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, hi, my name is Vanch. Uh, I'm an international student from India. I'm majoring in econ and computer science. Awesome. And I'm really excited to have Vanch join us today because this is the first time we also get to have student perspective uh, with the conversation. Uh, Honored to introduce to you all Professor Dr. Scott Gelber, who is a professor of education at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. He is a historian whose work focuses on the development of American higher education during the 19th and 20th centuries. His most recent book is Grading the College, A History of Evaluating Teaching and Learning, which was published through Johns Hopkins University Press. So again, my first introduction to uh, Scott comes through, I, we did this uh, exercise or this activity when I was in my doctoral program, uh, Books of the Century. So my professor found one of these really interesting books, which was Courtrooms and Classrooms, which is essentially looking at the ways in which court, uh, court systems often defer <laughs> to universities in terms of like decisions that they, uh, the decisions that they make. And what you really find that's really interesting throughout that book is a lot of the injustices that continue to be upheld within a higher education, but then also being able to trace the historical nature between what all of that looks like. So uh, coming through uh, coming through, and then being able to find more of Professor Scott's uh, work has been really interesting and helpful for me. So today have the honor of being able to talk about his most recent book, Grading the College, A History of Evaluating Teaching and Learning, which is really timely for us, right? Because we're approaching the end of the semester, Everyone wants to know how they're doing. Uh, and that's not just students, but that's also us as instructors as well. So before we get into the book in and of itself, Scott, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your interest in educational history, particularly with American higher education, and then why this work in general is just so important to you? Sure. Uh, and first, thanks for having me. Um, looking forward to the conversation. Um, well, like a lot of uh, professors of education, I started out as a K-12 teacher. I taught um, high school history in New York City. Um, and then uh, I went to graduate school and I, you know, it sounds kind of idealistic, but I felt uh, like many historians that learning about the past would be a way to get some insight into solutions to current problems. And I originally thought that I wanted to study um, history of K-12 education. I gravitated towards higher education after realizing uh, that the gaps in the literature were much bigger. Um, and also, frankly, that my dissertation advisor specialized in that area. Um, the other thing that interests me about um, history of higher ed is that I think most professors feel like they're kind of experts in our institutions, um, but that a lot of sort of conventional assumptions about higher education that faculty in particular have are based on this very um, sort of particular time in the history of higher ed in the 50s and 60s that we see as sort of the golden age. Um, and that really distorts our sense of uh, what came before and sort of what we're experiencing now. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of 
room to do some important work to help people become um, more aware of uh, the context that our institutions operate in. Yeah. So, and then with that, um, you know, so now we're at this point, again, we're talking about, you know, teaching and learning and, you know, evaluations, assessments. So again, you wrote this book, you know, grading the college and it's an interesting time because as someone who works in the center for teaching and learning, of course, the work that we do is, you know, we want professors to, to instructors at all levels to do their absolute best and develop as much as they possibly can in terms of their ability to teach. Uh, but the a way that we assess that is ultimately through like evaluations and assessments of, of teaching and learning inside of those spaces. So with this most recent book, can you talk to us a little bit about why you felt like this was the right time to give a history behind teach, uh, teaching and learning and, and how you came across uh, just this general topic um, overall? Sure. It, it started with my own experiences inside my institution. I was asked to be on the uh, Curriculum Evaluation Committee. And I noticed that, I mean, first of all, it's a daunting and I think very interesting challenge to figure out how to evaluate teaching and learning. Um, but also that there were some problematic attitudes I felt um, held by some of my colleagues where um, they were pretty uh, dismissive of the venture, um, either by um, assuming that it was not possible because what we do is too complicated to ever be really measured, uh, and two, by assuming that anybody who asked for evaluation was actually um, attacking us. Uh, and so um, I suspected that uh, there was truth in that to some extent, but that it was an oversimplification. Um, and one of the sort of interesting tensions that I you know, found motivating for me is that I agree with a lot of their critiques, um, but I didn't like the way they said it or their sort of attitude about it. Um, so I actually agree that it is indeed very, very difficult to um, evaluate and measure teaching and learning. Um, but rather than seeing that as a reason to uh, reject the endeavor, I feel like that's a characteristic of all great questions in academia and intellectual life, right? So we would never say, well, it's really difficult to figure out if, uh, you know, how the universe started and then conclude that it was, you know, a silly question to ask as an academic. Um, but we seem to have that attitude when it comes to the evaluation of, of higher education. Uh, and uh, I also agree that some of the calls for evaluation and accountability um, are driven by hostility towards higher ed. Um, but I suspected, and, and it was borne out by the archival research, uh, that a fair amount of it comes from inside the academy by people of um, goodwill who uh, saw this as an interesting problem and, and a worthwhile one, and tried to figure out um, different ways that we could accomplish this work. So, um, you know, I, I come around to accepting a lot of the sort of common criticisms. I just want to push back on the sort of knee-jerk way in which they uh, sometimes are communicated and ask um, all of us as uh, people working in higher education to really um, try to take it as seriously as any other great unanswered question or maybe unanswerable question that we face in our disciplines. Right. And, and, I, and I can appreciate that as well. You know, there are always limitations in everything that we do, right? That's why when you write and publish these academic journals, you're always asked them to you're always asked to, to identify, right? Like what are the limitations within that respective study? And um, certainly evaluating and assessing 
teaching and learning inside of a classroom isn't immune to that. With that, like you also talk about, you just mentioned like hostility. And when I, my undergraduate degree was in communication arts. So one of the things that we learned really early on about like products and, you know, consumer feedback is that most time people give feedback when they, when they dislike <laughs> the product or they have problems with it. And is that kind of like what you're also referring to when you're talking about like hostility towards, you know, instructors or maybe like the learning experience in general? I mean, I think that is part of what um, fuels some of the opposition to student course evaluations, which I imagine we'll talk about in greater depth later on in this conversation. Um, but I also think that it is... Um, in part because of this particular era that we find ourselves in in higher education, where um, in public institutions, there's been you know, a decades long trajectory of budget cuts. Uh, there's some politicians who have made their careers on attacking higher education uh, in the private sector. Um, there's you know, increasing issues of uh, affordability. And so um, I think that there's a understandable um, sense of insecurity in our field right now, um, both in public and private institutions, and that one of the contributions of taking a historical perspective on this topic is that we can look at errors um, before this current, and I would say sort of post-1970s time of um, sort of decline, uh, and see people who were still asking these questions about how to measure teaching and learning, um, and we can begin to unravel a little bit how much of our feelings about evaluation are really fundamental critiques of the tools and methods and questions we're asking, and how much of it is that in this moment in time, it's really hard to think about evaluation without also thinking about the political attacks and the financial pressures um, that, that we're facing. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I, find these characters who are asking these questions at a time when it was sort of more innocent than it is now, because um, not only was higher education, um, you know, uh, sort of growing every single year and the, um, but also if you look at the position of faculty, especially in the immediate post-World War II era, uh, they'd never been more secure um, than they were in that, you know, this is when tenure really blossoms as a, as a real institution. It's when the job market is extremely good. Uh, and so people were sort of more willing, I think, to have these conversations during that context than they, they are um, now, understandably, when we're, you know, among other things, losing more and more full-time jobs. And so everyone's feeling a little more tense and precarious about these questions. Yeah. And then you, you talk, uh, oh, Vaughn, go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. You can go first, Quares. No, no you got it. I've already asked two questions. You got it. Uh, when we talk about limitations, uh, particularly about uh, teaching and learning, do you think we're uh, hindering the pursuit or the scope of teaching uh, by using a word or a phrase such as uh, limitations? Because do you think that uh, at the end of the at the end of the road, there will be only a certain amount of ways a professor can teach a student, but on the other hand, we're saying there's numerous ways that we can learn different things. There's only a handful of ways to teach, but there's plenty of ways to learn. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, one of the object objections that faculty have often raised to evaluation of teaching is that 
uh, they'll, they'll say it's a very personal endeavor and there's lots of ways to do it well. Uh, and they will say, and this goes back to the very beginning of uh, my book really covers 1920 through the 1970s. That's sort of the core period that I'm looking at. Um, however, uh, the vast majority of them are lecturing. So they would say, look, everybody has their own technique and style. Uh, and really what they meant is everybody has their own way of lecturing. Uh, and so I, I don't find that objection to be um, particularly um, persuasive. I also think that um, they're right in the sense that it is very difficult to define what good teaching is in the abstract. Uh, and we're getting closer, I think, than I could just be sort of a presentist um, perspective, but certainly the researchers who tried to answer that question in mid-century the United States uh, had a very difficult time. And a part of that, I think, is the limitations of their methodology, but they they couldn't even prove, they assumed when they started studying these questions that they would find that seminar-style discussion classes were more effective. And for years and years and years, they just simply couldn't prove it. Um, you know, now we suspect part of this is that those seminar-style classes were uh, relatively unstructured for one, and two, they were trying to prove that it would increase student standardized test scores, and that's probably not the best way nor the best measure for what higher education is supposed to accomplish in, in general. Um, I will say, though, that um, while um, professors exaggerate the extent to which we have a diversity of styles, uh, I think students uh, don't always have a great sense of how many quote unquote learning styles are actually out there. Uh, and psychologists have been working hard at this for a while and, and are actually often frustrated um, because uh, this is not my, I'm a historian, but this is my read of their, their research, um, that uh, once we set aside certain um, issues such as someone who has visual impairments or hearing impairments, um, for the most part, we're thinking about how to match the concepts that we're teaching with the type of pedagogy that's best for that particular concept or topic, and that the variations in how students learn are um, actually much more narrow than we think. So for example, a lot of students will say, I'm a visual learner. And it turns out that um, unless you're visually prepared, everybody's a visual learner. Um, and that there are certain topics where everybody's going to benefit from having some visual presentation in addition to just hearing, um, hearing a lecture. So, I, and, you know, I think, I think the professors exaggerate the diversity of what we do. And I think uh, it's not just the students. It's, it, it, it sometimes uh, gets referred to as a zombie idea because it refuses to die no matter how many times we, we try to kill it. Um, and, and, you know, which is not to say that all students are the same, obviously. Students all have very different experiences and backgrounds and contexts. But when it comes uh, down to sort of instructional strategies about how to present material, um, we're, we're a lot more alike than we sometimes realize. Yeah, with that, uh, we just had this conversation yesterday. So I, um, program coordinator, so it's, it's a micro-credential called the Just and Equitable Teaching Program. So one of the discussions that we just had yesterday or to, uh, to actually end the program was to talk about, you know, inclusive teaching. So I put up this definition that comes from Sean Harper, and I forget the name of the other author, but they provide this definition of good teaching, which essentially the tenets of it is that it's reflective of an individual who plans, 
reflects and essentially moves the student learning goals and outcomes to be reflective of you know what the field says about that literature. So basically the understanding is that a lot of it is based upon like what literature states, <laughs> uh, what scholarship says and how that field is particularly studied and then moving the classroom to spaces where they understand like all of that, right? Which a lot of that is like also really limiting. There's a, a core concept embedded in that, which is also looking at opportunities to strategize or looking at opportunities to kind of strategize ways to move students closer to understanding um, all of those learning goals and outcomes as well. So with that, part of like what we talk about is that part of the strategies must incorporate the students in and of themselves. So how are we building classrooms that are looking at the O of opportunity when it comes to diversity and not the O of obstacle, right? When it comes to what students need to know. So basically what we're telling folks is, you know, our default normally is to, I know that this is the class I have to teach. This is the content that students must know. These are the things that students must be able to do. But then you have to also add in the variable of the students as well, right? And to mm -hmm. how can we move them closer to understanding as well as being actively involved in that process. And this gets into some of the things that you talked about that I also really appreciate from a historical perspective because we talk so much now about the importance behind uh, active learning in today's college classrooms, but this has actually been a historical issue. So can you talk more, as you stated, you know, going back and finding, you know, research going back to the 1920s about, you know, how pervasive this issue has been and even like the differences between what you see now or some of the similarities between what you have seen in literature, what it says about teaching in the 1920s versus what we typically see in today's classrooms. Yeah, I um, mean, uh, oh, yeah. quick question. I'll just add to Quadezas. Uh, do you think uh, we talk about how technology has brought more efficiency, productivity into the human life. But yet when we talk about teaching and learning, we think about it in a really, in a really very, in like a black or uh, white kind of sense. It's either wrong or it's either right. Like, I don't think like, at least for higher ed, uh, when I, when I fail a midterm, uh, it's never like my professor would be, uh, if you're sick, you could take it again. If you have a doctor's no, but a professor never asks a student uh, what happened. Why weren't you prepared for that? H how could we move forward with that? Or if someone is not submitting or someone is caught cheating on an assignment or a test, I don't think like the right sort of reasoning is done behind that. So as to why student came to that point, because I feel students come to a point on cheating and not submitting their assignments when they kind of have no option to lay back onto. Either they think that uh, their college is way too strict with uh, deadlines, extensions, or they just assume that professor would not understand my situation. So is there truly that connection between a student and a professor? And do you think like professors uh, these days in higher ed are willing to make that connection with those with with their students? And do you think that it's been and do you think the dynamics dyna, uh, my bad dynamics been changed from the 1920s to uh, 21st century or do you think it's kind of the same dynamic where it's a really straightforward relationship where I, I i go to my class my professor teaches me things i do not understand anything and 
a couple of days before my test, I cram everything in because it's less about I have to acquire knowledge and it's more about, oh, I just have to go to class. Like, like econ, especially for me, freshman year was like, I was looking forward to go to the class, but then I feel it just kind of got so heavy and so rigorous so quick in a matter of a semester where to a point I have to pull myself to class. I was like, oh, I need my attendance. There's like a minimum 75% attendance so I cannot be missing my classes. Um, I mean, it, there certainly have been significant changes. Uh, I um, I guess I'll address uh, Vonch's question and then circle back and address um, Cortez's initial question. Um, you know, we do sometimes have kind of a caricature of college students in the past and assume that um, everything was more formal and serious. Um, and it's clear that there was, um, and that, you know, in the, in the old days, people had more respect one for the other. Uh, and that definitely does not seem to have been the case. There were plenty of um, students who were very serious, but a lot of students who were not very serious. Um, and so the the relationship, you know, was supposed to be more formal, but it didn't always end up working out that way in terms of, uh, I think that the, the idea that professors should listen to their students um, really doesn't emerge until the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and uh, the other significant, I mean, there's a couple real significant changes in that relationship. One is that um, up until, um, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, really, uh, you didn't have to go to college to get a lot of uh, middle-class jobs. And so the the stakes were lower for a lot of students um, and the importance of their grades were lower. So um, students could be sort of more casual about how they were doing and not necessarily care as much uh, about their performance. Um, and they could drop out without a huge impact, um, you know, unless they wanted to be a doctor um, or a reverend uh, or a teacher. Um, you know, for a long time, um, you know, in the late 19th century, you didn't have to go to college to be a lawyer, right? So a, a lot has changed, whereas um, starting in the gradually in the post-World War II hour in the building over time, you have more and more students who are in college, sort of whether they want to be or not. And also the consequences of their grades become much more important um, because there's more competition among college graduates for, for these jobs. So, um, you know, the, the students tended to be more accepting of the authority of the professors, not because, you know, people were more obedient back then in particular, more respectful, but the, the whole function of the college degree was very different than what it's become. Uh, and that's had a pretty big influence on um, uh, course evaluations, uh, which, which connects us a little bit to the original question. Uh, it's about sort of how teaching has changed. It's important to understand that when the lecture was introduced, it was seen as a real revolutionary and progressive pedagogy. Um, because before the lecture, the standard way that students learned in college was they would be assigned something to read, then they would go to class, and they would be expected to recite from memory passages that they had read. And the professor would go around the room and basically call on people and say, you know, what, it, what was this section? And you'd have to just verbatim spit it back, right? It's just sheer memorization. And so the lecture was quite progressive because, uh, for one thing, it didn't have to be published in a book. 
the professor could assemble the lecture notes from a variety of places, which meant that the information was more up to date. You didn't have to rely on, on the publishing process. Um, it also could be tailored to the expertise and the experience of the professor, right? Um, uh, and also could be paired with recitation sessions that were less about memorization, more about students having a little bit of conversation about the material. Uh, so uh, for quite some time that, and still for some today, that was seen not as a backwards practice, but as like good pedagogy and sort of the cutting edge. Um, the, uh, the movement for more student-centered pedagogy begins in the 20s, uh, or really takes, uh, and uh, you get students, you know, now the lecture system has been play in place for 20, 30 years, and it no longer seems fresh. Uh, and uh, there's increasing student discontent about their experience. Um, part of this is you're beginning to see in the 20s um, you know, more students feeling like they don't have a choice but to be there because uh, there's still there's uh, increasing numbers of these jobs that require a degree, whether students want them uh, or not. Um, and interestingly, students felt that these course evaluations, which begin in the 20s, although don't become really universal until the 60s and 70s, were going to help bring about this revolution because they felt that once professors would be compelled to hear what students had to say in terms of their feedback, they would definitely change their teaching. Um, and to their disappointment, they found that it didn't have the impact that they, they wanted it to have. Um, and it's still uh, something that students often feel and experience. Um, and so, um, especially in the 60s and 70s, students who were pushing for student course evaluations was very much part of this broader student protest movement of that time, the anti-war movement, civil rights movements. Um, and they thought that giving voice to young people was gonna really um, not just change higher ed, but uh, revolutionize the whole society. Uh, and then they become uh, quickly disappointed with of course evaluations um, because they don't see professors making changes in response to the feedback that they're giving. Um, and, uh, and then within a few years at many campuses, you see a change from uh, professors being nervous about what's going to happen and students being very excited to professors getting frustrated that students won't fill the forms out and students saying, what's the point of filling the form out? Because I don't see any evidence that my voice is being listened to. Um, and, uh, and professors um, growing to appreciate the course evaluation, actually, because they feel some need to evaluate teaching and this is the most convenient way for them because they just hand the form out and they get the feedback um, and they don't have to have messy and difficult conversations with colleagues. Um, and students of course are disappointed um, because they feel like not only are professors not making changes along the, kind, uh, the, way, the lines that they wanna see, but that there aren't institutional mechanisms to hold professors accountable. Uh, and part of this again is that context of what's happening in higher ed overall where uh, the job market for faculty in the 60s from a faculty perspective is really, really good. Um, so it was going to take a fair amount for you to get um, sort of disciplined or let alone fired um, at that time. Um, and research is becoming more and more important. Uh, and so it's kind of this unlucky confluence for students where just when they get uh, this process institutionalized that they've been asking for for quite some time, it's really at the peak moment of a period where professors can kind of do whatever they want. 
um, in, in a way that, um, you know, uh, is it, starting to change for better or for worse, but it has been sort of in place for um, certainly through the, the, the late 90s and, and early 2000s. Yeah, and that's a huge that's a huge thing to be aware of in terms of, you know, feedback. Our responsibility as instructors, as educators, is also to be responsive to the needs of, of our students. Um, and I, you, you brought up, you know, accountability, because you also addressed that as well um, within the book. So in chapter six, you talk about, you know, a, a accountability and evaluating teaching and learning going back to the 80s. Um, so we've seen state assessments that consider graduation rates job placement, test scores, survey results, and other criteria, as you know. Um, but what evaluative criteria of teaching and learning do we typically over-rely on um, as it relates to the ways in which we see, you know, learning taking place inside of, inside of the academic sphere? And how limiting can this ultimately be? Yeah. So first, I just have to acknowledge this is a very important topic, but it's, it's not my wheelhouse. Chapter six is the one chapter that's not based on archival research. Um, and so I'm, I'm mostly summarizing other people's work here. Um, I, uh, where I come down on this, which again is not an original idea, is that it, uh, higher ed needs to do a better job of distinguishing between the accountability metrics that we use to weed out the few bad apples, and then the evaluation data that we use to get better. Um, because I generally, my sense is that there's two very different types of information. So in the first category, we want to know which institutions are basically lying to their students and defrauding them when it comes to how much debt they're going to have and what their post-graduation outcomes are going to be, what the dropout rates are. I think all that data is legitimate. Now, of course, um, we need to be very mindful of all of the variables that are outside the control of the institution. In K-12, there's a, a really nasty habit that we've developed of punishing the schools in the least advantaged neighborhoods mm -hmm. and saying that's a bad school, right? And as those of us who study education know, um, you know, teaching is extremely important, but a lot of what we see in the classroom is a manifestation of income inequality and um, economic structures and histories of racial oppression that uh, are not necessarily reflecting the quality of teaching or administration that's happening, right? So when we have these dashboards and then we find out that the schools that are serving predominantly low-income students um, are not looking great on those dashboards and then the rich institutions are doing great, like that's not really telling us a whole lot that we probably didn't already know. So um, we need to be careful. We need to make sure that we're controlling for those variables. And I think that data really uh, primarily should be used um, to find um, the, the schools that are really taking advantage of students and basically misleading them. I'm much more interested in the second bucket, which is the evaluation data. And that's the information that we can use to actually get better. And I think it's important to disaggregate those two things because nobody, almost nobody likes to be evaluated and almost nobody likes the idea of accountability when it's applied to them. And so when you start including um, program evaluation, course evaluation um, in the same category as how many of your students are defaulting on their loans, 
I think you make professors less open to those conversations and less honest. And it feels more like um, a exercise that you do to satisfy the politicians and the accreditors. And then we're not gonna be honest and it's not gonna feel authentic and it's not gonna be productive. I think, um, and I hope this isn't naive, but I think that most faculty members actually enjoy talking about their instruction with other people as long as they feel like they're not being judged and punished for it. Um, and those are the types of conversations that I think can be fruitful where colleagues and departments get together and look at the evidence that's most important, which is what is the work that our students are doing, right? In those conversations, we still need to be mindful of all the external factors. I mean, we know some of our students are coming to our classes with a lot of challenges that make it difficult for them to concentrate. You know, they, they could be have income insecurity, they could be hungry, they could be in abusive situations. Um, you know, th there's a lot that's outside of your control in higher ed, just like in K-12. Um, but we can look at, here's the essay that they wrote, here's the lab report that they did, um, here's my notes from the seminar conversation that we had, and talk to each other about, are we satisfied with what we're seeing? Um, can we um, have a little more consistency between our courses so we're all kind of rowing in the same direction? You know, what types of techniques seem to be most effective? Uh, and, and I think that that helps us to get away from some of the dismissive attitudes that I talked about in the beginning of this conversation where people feel like evaluation is out to get them um, rather than it being an opportunity to have interesting conversations that uh, may lead to productive changes in our courses and, and in our programs. Yeah, Vaughn, you, you were about to say something. Uh, we talk about these uh, uh, extra circumstances that student, students face and the fact that higher ed, uh, higher education institutions are aware of the fact that there's more to students than beyond the classroom. Uh, as you mentioned, a few reasons, there could be abuse situations, uh, mental health issues, or even just like income insecurity. But it's, it's funny how higher education institutions recognize this issue and yet are willing to do nothing about it. If I were to tell my professor, uh, I'm having trouble financially. I honestly do not think I'm going to get a couple of weeks off from my class or a couple assignments taken off of my portfolio for the course. It's just going to be the same. Uh, a university does not have anything set in stone. Uh, sorry, it has everything set in stone and it's like nothing can be moved. Uh, no matter what situation the student is in, it just it just stays the same because that is the way it is because it's like that's how the course is designed to supposed or designed so there's not a lot of changes made there's just a bunch of options given to students if someone's suffering from mental health issues to go see a psychiatrist a, a, a university sponsored psychiatrist or something like that sort but nothing is being done academically nothing's going beyond that okay you can use campus resources yeah, it's it's really important uh, topic in question. Um, I, um, in fact, uh, just this morning, I think, in Inside Higher Ed, I saw there was the student survey, um, the results were published, and the desire for the flexibility that you're talking about is one of the um, most common critiques that students today have. I, I have a couple of things to say about that. First is, um, 
it's very frustrating for students how inconsistent professors are one from the other and how unpredictable it is. And um, this has a lot to do with the status of the profession and also our ideas about academic freedom. And I actually happen to be working on an article right now about um, the extent to which academic freedom should or shouldn't apply to sort of regular classroom decisions about um, do I give a multiple choice test or um, what are my policies on extensions? Um, there's an assumption that most faculty have that academic freedom means, um, you know, as long as I'm not grossly negligent um, or discriminatory, I should be able to do whatever I want. Um, and that's uh, a real conversation starter. And I think um, a lot of administrators understandably don't, they don't even wanna go there because they know that most professors are gonna be really outraged by any um, suggestion that the institution should develop a policy that dictates what the professor should or shouldn't do inside the classroom. And I understand how, how frustrating that is for students. And I think that there's a, a case to be made that uh, actually it should not be part of academic freedom um, because academic freedom is really um, predicated on peer review and disciplinary expertise. And most faculty don't actually have uh, disciplinary expertise, nor are we subject to peer review when it comes to decisions about how do I respond to students who are having a mental health crisis? Like, we don't have any training on that. We don't have, you know, the American Historical Association doesn't, you know, have a mental health policy, right? So the, the, there's an infrastructure that exists to um, police each other when it comes to our scholarship and our real core disciplinary expertise that doesn't exist when it comes to pedagogical decisions. I mean, there are organizations in higher ed obviously who are disseminating information about best practices, but uh, we certainly don't have the, the coherent sort of system of peer review that we have for, for publishing. In terms of the substance of it, I think it's one of the most important um, tensions in education, which is that um, we're caught between a desire to teach in a way that makes the world better, sort of this utopian impulse, on one hand, and on the other hand, a desire to prepare students for the imperfect world that we know actually exists. Um, so I'm not gonna weigh in on whether I think professors should give these extensions or not, um, but I do think that um, that there, there are probably some of them who genuinely think they're doing the right thing because they're concerned about what happens when students leave the college or university and are accustomed to that level of flexibility and find that their employer is not interested, right? I'm not making that case. I just think that, you know, um, I, I think there are some situations where it's really the vast majority of professors would agree. Like if somebody um, has, um, a death in the family, you know, or is hospitalized, I think someone has to be really um, cold and cruel to not uh, make accommodations. But then there's a whole, um, a whole other, you know, um, universe of situations that students find them in where, or I just think it's, it's not quite as clear. I, I find myself really on this knife's edge in my work, because my teaching is actually almost all working with, um, students who want to be high school teachers. I coordinate our secondary education program. 
So I see them out in the field um, and even in, in high schools where everybody's there because they want to be helpful. Um, at the end of the day, um, dependability is really important for high school principals because um, they know students are there and they need someone who's going to be there. Um, so that doesn't mean that teachers aren't entitled to sick days and mental health days and personal crises uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I, I'll, you know, I personally struggle with what the right way to respond to students um, because I, I don't want to be inflexible, but I also don't want to be sort of unrealistic. Um, no, that's that's very real, and I will, I will chime in and say that I in this semester, you know, teaching a graduate level course, you know, I try to be flexible as well, and you know. I've heard, you know, this is adage that I've heard before is that, you know, some people you give them an inch and then they'll take a mile. <laughs> I had uh, a couple of students that that had not submitted anything. So our course is asynchronous and hadn't received anything uh, from them in terms of like the third of discussions. And then there was a unit reflection that was due. So after two weeks, I noticed that they hadn't submitted them, reached out to both of them. Both of them gave different reasons. Uh, both of them stated that they had some medical things that were going on. Uh, one of them also adding in that they had a death in their family of, uh, they had a death in their family. So of course, right, you know, you don't want to be cold hearted or anything. So of course, you know, if you need an extension on that, can certainly do it. Uh, one student got in those two assignments and then the other student, we went another three weeks and then they missed two more assignments. So now they're four assignments behind and then, you know, reached out to the student again. And then uh, it became, Hey, I can only take the last two assignments now. I can't take all four. And then it was deemed to be like, okay, well, like I already told you that I had these other things that were going on and like all this other stuff. Right. So it was stated at that point, I could give you an extension, but now we are more than a month behind <laughs> on different things. And that's what I also communicate with, uh, with faculty members is that as we're trying to be fair to students, there's also that expectation and, and a conversation that we can have with the students where they also have to understand that they have to be fair to us too. Right. So whereas for you, it's why I have these things that are going on. Now think about me being you're asking me to grade now a month's worth of assignments that are now late, in addition to like all of your peers. And part of these being like threaded discussions. Right. So when I'm going back and I also add feedback to folks and everything. So like, does is that a fair situation to then put your instructor into? Right. So these are things that we also talk about within our center. And a lot of centers for teaching and learning in terms of what do these conversations look like at the beginning of the course in terms of what behaviors, codes of conducts, and expectations look like on the on the part of the instructor, as well as on students as well. Something that you stated, and I want to make sure that we can get you out as well, because I know you have some uh, some advising to get to. Um, but one of the things that you stated in terms of as faculty members or instructors, there are a lot of things that folks don't necessarily know in terms of, you know, support services and different things. Sometimes that's because of the, at least from what I've observed, which is the onboarding process of faculty into the institution. Now I'm biased because my master's program, I was trained through student affairs. So a lot of the work that I came up with was a lot of, you know, being able to pay attention to a lot of these different things. Uh, what are the red flags that you can identify as well as uh, introducing yourself uh, to a lot of these services on campus. Uh, and I've seen you know, some onboarding processes when it relates to uh, faculty of all levels, even if it's adjunct, 
you know, me right now, I'm an adjunct at another university and my onboarding was, hey, this is asynchronous. This is a platform that we use. Let me know what you, uh, send me what the syllabus looks like uh, and let me know if you have any questions. Literally, like, like that was my onboarding process. But what do I now know about if I see students that aren't paying attention or if I don't see them very active, uh, if I haven't seen them participating uh, in anything in a couple of weeks? Uh, what if there are, to Vonch's point, right? You know, food insecurities or anything going on, how am I introducing folks to the resources that they need across campus? So uh, I think part of that is, you know, the ways in which we are also familiarizing faculty across all levels with these resources on campus. And the difficulty is that there are some things that we just can't necessarily help, right? Like if someone doesn't have the money to pay for like the resources or the books inside of the course, there's only so many things that we can do, right? So there's the the realistic pieces that are a part of it. Now, definitely, how can I direct them to different areas across campus, but also be realistic about whether, like I can't go and buy the book for five people inside of the class if they don't have it, right? So I think those are also some of the things that receiving feedback from our students that we could certainly um, use and, and try to find like alternatives. But yeah, it is it really is a struggle. Last question I'll ask you, because I know you got to get out of here. As we talk about all of the criterion for you know promotion and assessing what teaching and learning looks like and how well we are overall doing from your perspective scott like what are what do you believe are the most important things that we should be taking into consideration in terms of the data that we're collecting on teaching and learning uh and 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 how do we pull that out more from our institutions instead of some of the things that we typically see that were already named before so I, I think we're in the beginning of a movement away from student course evaluations uh, as uh, carrying so much of the weight of teaching evaluations. Uh, I think that I'm not saying they're gonna go away entirely, nor do I think they should, um, but I think that's a positive movement. Um, and the, the history of this I think is, is interesting, uh, which is that, um, Student course evaluations have become less valid over time um, because uh, students used to care less about their grades. Uh, and uh, as students began to care more about their grades, for reasons I discussed earlier, uh, the evaluations started to correlate more with the grades, right? And so that's obviously a, a problem in terms of what they're measuring and what the incentives are for the faculty. Um, the attitude of students towards higher ed has changed and there's more of a sense of, I'm here, I paid for it, I kind of deserve this and I expect it to be sort of given to me in a certain way. The other thing that's changed is we now have a lot more data um, about racial bias and gender bias and all kinds of bias, right? Um, for a while, there wasn't a critical mass of enough faculty of color to even study that in a really rigorous way. Um, and uh, the data on um, women faculty was inconclusive. Um, and in fact, there were some studies showing that women, as long as they um, sort of lived up or you know, matched students' preconceived notions of gender, uh, sometimes women faculty in some studies seem to be getting an edge. 
but they get severely punished if they stray from the typical student's sense of what it means to be a woman. You know, if they they come across as not nurturing or motherly or, or, or something like that. So it's obviously hugely problematic. There's bias against people based on, you know, physical appearance. Um, so these are all really good reasons. And I think the post-George Floyd moment has pushed us even farther away. So as you may know, there's some universities that are, have completely removed student course evaluations from the tenure promotion process altogether. I think that it's probably worth keeping student course evaluations on the table to some extent because students are there every day. Uh, and there's something about discounting that perspective. I think that is just troubling uh, on its face. We also have to be concerned a little bit about unintended consequences if we get rid of them, because then that puts a lot more of the emphasis on peer-to-peer -peer evaluation. And certainly faculty members are not immune from being biased um, or idiosyncratic. Uh, so we have seen some studies that show that um, students tend to um, be more reliable in a statistical sense, that is they cluster together more than faculty when you ask faculty to evaluate each other. And I think that's because we have deep preconceived notions of what good teaching is, or we expect our colleague to teach the way that we teach. And so we might come into a class and observe and say, um, now there are ways to counteract this, right? There's rubrics, but at the end of the day, it's an individual sitting there checking things off. Um, where students tend to be a little more open-minded um, because they don't have as much of the preconceived notion about sort of what they're they're looking for. Um, again, I hope that we continue to move towards looking at student work. I mean, ultimately the purpose of this is to help students um, produce good work. Uh, and so, uh, yes, we can pop into a couple classes during the course of the semester, um, but I don't think that's a substitute for taking a look at how the students are performing. It's more complicated because they're not giving us a number, right? Um, and we have to have some kind of rubric or method or process for looking at the work students are doing. And as I said, using student work is uh, has a lot of um, pitfalls because there's a lot that can go into um, how the students are performing. So, you know, if you've got a, I, I work in a small college, you can have an upper level seminar with, um, you know, 10 students or eight students, and two of them are having a bad year, it could make you look like you were a bad teacher. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the the difficult part is that a lot of this, I think, needs to be qualitative. Um, but the, the qualitative can really um, magnify bias. Uh, of course, the bias is there in the student course evaluations also. So, um, you know, the people who really study this um, usually acknowledge any single way we have of evaluating teaching has serious flaws. And so the best we can do is to build a process that relies on multiple measurements um, and look at it in concert. And that includes self-evaluation. So people putting a portfolio together, talking about changes they've made, um, you know, training they've received and pursued um, as part of the picture. And I think when you combine what students are saying, what someone's saying about themselves, the way they talk about the work that their students are doing and the examples they're able to point to and the efforts they've taken to, to grow and improve. Um, 
you can get a pretty good picture of someone's teaching performance, even if you can't attach a number to it. Um, so the, the, the problem is that the more measures we look at, the more time consuming it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, faculty have limited number of hours in the day and there's pressure to publish um, and, and teach uh, and advise, um, you know, so, uh, for example, at the peer observations in a perfect world, we'd all get training in how to observe each other. And we would spend a fair amount of time talking about and revising the, the, the rubric or whatever other structure there is in place. Um, and we'd observe each other multiple times. So it's not just, you know, I popped in this one time. Um, but that comes at a cost, right? There's an opportunity cost there. Uh, similarly, the bigger the portfolio gets, the longer and more cumbersome it is for the tenure. Um, uh, committee to look at it and for the colleagues in the department to to mentor that person. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to all the counter arguments, but um, clearly there needs to be evaluation and clearly relying, you know, in some institutions, especially with uh, part-time faculty, it's all the student course evaluations. Uh, and that's that's clearly not right, um, be, primarily because of the, the bias that that can introduce, but also you know, Vansh, you may not like to hear this, but sometimes the things that are most helpful for students to learn don't always feel best to the student at the time. And I think a lot of us can feel, can think back to professors that or high school teachers that we had. In retrospect, we learned a lot from, but at the time we didn't really enjoy it. Now, there are some professors who can do both, um, but that's, uh, that's a really talented individual who's able to be really rigorous, really, and they're out there, really rigorous, really tough and have the students love every, every moment of it. Um, and so it does threaten to um, give incentives to professors in terms of how they, uh, what their standards are in terms of how they grade students that, um, that are probably not, not the most productive. Now we're talking about it as an institutional level, you know, evaluating the institution, um, it's even more challenging because now you're looking at a whole department, um, let alone an individual. What's easier about that situation is that we're not making yes and no decisions about whether to rehire someone or not, or give them tenure or not, or um, give them a merit raise or not. Um, so I think when we're looking at programs and departments, um, you know, going messy and all qualitative is, in my opinion, clearly the way to go. Now, now you got to look at numbers when it comes to, you know, are we devoting resources to a program that's not, you know, recruiting enough students or the students are not getting jobs. Um, so I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I, I just don't think that's where the real growth tends to happen. Yeah, it it's, like it's often not, sorry, sorry, the last point I'll make that is with the, with the data, like, you know, the national data that we get, and, and we see this in K-12 too with the big standardized test scores. We can see, okay, our students are not getting jobs, but that alone doesn't necessarily tell us what the problem is, right? Is this because we're not preparing them well? Is it because, um, you know, we're not teaching effectively or we're teaching them the wrong things? Um, so there needs to be another layer of analysis. With the standardized testing in K-12, you can get this negative outcome um, but it's not really telling you, not only is it not necessarily telling you what the problem is, but it's not telling you what the solution is. Mm. Um, and so it's it's not the most useful, I think, kind of information to have. Everyone, Scott, 
Gelber joining us here uh, this uh, this afternoon. Scott, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Um, you know, sharing your expertise. Everyone, again, grading the college: a history of evaluating teaching and learning, amongst other readings from Scott, are really uh, really really important. Of course, I'm saying this uh, biasly because I am also a history of education uh, <laughs> history of education uh, major myself. But thank you so much for joining us, Vance. Thank you so much for joining this conversation as well. Uh, if you all have any other thoughts, questions, considerations about future topics that we can have for the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me, Dr. Scott, at quatez.scott at colorado.edu. Thank you all so much for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you soon.